it has been a while since I've heard that song and it was wonderful to hear it again. Truths proclaimed. Whatever you're facing, the Lord's way is perfect. We don't, we want to, we want to argue with that sometimes in our carnality. Sometimes in our carnality, we want to give God advice. Lord, I think it'd be better if it was done this way. And we all struggle with that. Things that were unexpected or situations, even as we've been seeing in David's life, in our study of David, things didn't go really as, as he planned, but God's way is perfect. What is the ultimate example of that truth? It's what we're looking at here. The worst, the greatest outrage of sin that was ever committed, the crucifixion of the Son of God. And yet God, the Father, had a plan for that. And we would all agree that with Jesus, that his death and resurrection, that his way is perfect. And we're so thankful for that. And we praise him for that. And so as we go into this again, as we look at these events before the crucifixion of our Lord, we're appalled, we're sobered, we're reminded this was the way that salvation could be offered to us. And so we glory in this as well. John 18, looking at 14 verses today as we begin John 18. And we saw last week what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' prayer. We're going to look back at that again in a minute. But John in chapter 18, verse 1, kind of summarizes quickly what happened when Jesus had spoken these words. And these are the words, the prayer and the discourse that he gave to his disciples as they were approaching the gate of the city. Then he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron to the Mount of Olives. Well, that's not there, but it's included in some of the other, in the other synoptics. And there was a garden, and we're told in the synoptics, again, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that it's, it had a name, Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. And John just kind of works through or pushes through till uh, doesn't give us a lot of information about what happened there. And that's why last week we took some time to see what happened there in Gethsemane and the agony that Jesus went through and what in his knowledge of what he was about to face. And John works or, or quickly passes through that and into verse two to where the betrayer would meet up with Jesus. And remember, we saw as well that Jesus, when the time came, did not shy away, but he pushed his disciples saying, forward, forward to meet the betrayer. He did not shy away from the approaching persecutors, but he actually moved forward to meet them. And let's go ahead and read through verse 11, read through this event, and then we will go through it in more detail. When Jesus, or verse 2, now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place, that's the Garden of Gethsemane, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a, brand, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, 
came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. And by the way, he's referring to um, the word that he spoke in the passage that Floyd read just a few minutes ago. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into his sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And even as we begin this today, just one question to think through, not to answer yet, but to think through in this event, who's really in control? I think it'll be apparent as we continue to work through this, as we see betraying the Son of God. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to work through this passage and to have opportunity again to be reminded of all that Jesus was willing to go through for us. And yet he accepted it. He was submitted to it. He said, not my will, but thine be done. And he was not the victim of events. but He had a far different approach and attitude, as we'll see in the message today. Thank you. Father, for sending your son on this mission. And we're so grateful that he fully accepted the cup that he had to take as part as the end of that mission. And that now he offers us salvation through his atoning work and righteousness, adoption, and all of these things through faith in him. Let us marvel at what he was willing to do for us and let it motivate us to serve him more faithfully and committedly. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, at the end of that, we saw verse 11 that Jesus said these words, shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? And obviously through his agony in the garden there in Gethsemane, as we saw last week, Jesus was ready and willing to take on this cup, and he makes it apparent in that verse. But let's go back just briefly. What is the cup that he refers to? And let's go back. Go back with me to a passage that we did not look at last week. Now, let me explain. We won't be doing this every week, going back and trying to fit in every detail that all of the synoptics have for us when it comes to the crucifixion and what Jesus suffered. That would take too long. And we have a goal of getting to the, the resurrection passage on Easter. But I think it is helpful for us in some cases here to further along our understanding of John's narrative, to look at other passages. So we're going to look at Luke 22, turn there briefly, verse 39, Luke's account of what happened there in the garden at the Mount of Olives, Luke 22, 39. And we're going to gain further insight into 
what Jesus was ready to suffer as he met Judas, the betrayer. Verse 39, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, there's the garden, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Luke gives us another reason for the disciples' prayer, is that, again, they would not fall into the temptation of despair when all these events happen, but they'd be ready and prepared. And obviously we saw that because of their sleeping and because of their un willingness in their flesh to pray they really weren't prepared at all for what was about to take place and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw he didn't go too far from them in the garden and knelt down and prayed saying father if you are willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done now there was a lot of things we talked about in this last week but i wanted to be clear because you just can't fit it all in one message. What is this cup? The Old Testament refers many times to the cup of God's wrath against sin. This isn't a rash, unthought-through um, anger and frustration that just spills out in wrath like we tend to do. But this is an intentional, appropriate wrath that God has towards sin and God and it was it was apparent in the Old Testament that because of sin that sin deserved the full cup of God's wrath and it's presented that way many times in the New Testament Jesus presents the cup as suffering really as he's looking at this cup he's looking at both it's again, we'll, we'll work more into this concept because it's really hard. The English language, our human language, there's only so far you can go in trying to describe this. Because remember, throughout John, we've had Jesus describing the incredibly close, inseparable relationship between the Father and the Son, and he's been clear about that. And yet, here he is in agony in Gethsemane, realizing that he will have the wrath of God. And later, we will see that he even states, my God, my God, for um, quoting David in the Psalms, why hast thou forsaken me? And there's some debate about that. We're going to continue. We're not going to talk about that today, but we'll get back to that and what is going on. But there is an agony here that Jesus is about to take this cup, and he knows. And really what he's saying, again, he's not saying, Lord, is there any way that I can back out of this? With all we know and with what all he said in that John has recorded for us about him saying the mission's as good as done, right? Remember that? What he's saying here then in the garden is he's saying if there's another way to accomplish this or if there's a way to not have to go through the full cup of, of your wrath, if there's an alternate way to do this, Remove this cup from me, that being separated in one sense um, as the sin of the world is placed on him, experiencing God's cup of wrath. But at the same time, Jesus knows that it's God's will that he go through this. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. And the agony that he was going through is something that as mortals will never fully understand. 
Jesus, 100% human and the agony that he went through in facing this, but also deity, 100% God in that relationship with God. But we know that he suffered greatly in verse 44, Luke, uh, in verse 43 and 44, Luke makes this apparent. He says, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. This is the only gospel that records this detail. And Jesus was so um, grieved and his body even was experiencing such, um, well, trauma, really. His body was traumatized that an angel had to come to strengthen him for this moment. Why was he traumatized? It says, verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I've read a lot of commentaries about this, and it seems like there's uh, an approach uh, that's a little more accepted today about this because Luke says like great drops of blood that Luke isn't actually saying that his sweat uh, contained blood, but it was like as if blood flows from a cut that the sweat was flowing so profusely because of the trauma that he was experiencing. You know, if you're involved, your body's involved in trauma, or if you have physical, or excuse me, mental trauma, many times we, we can sweat more and things like that. Um, and I can understand where they're coming from on this, but I still think in overall, the overall picture here, Luke being a doctor, remember that this really is referring to an actual real medical condition called hematidrosis, where um, there was such stress. In fact, I, I have it described right here. Around the sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels in a net-like form. Under the pressure of great stress, the vessels constrict. Then as the anxiety passes, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture. The blood goes into the sweat glands. And as the sweat glands are producing a lot of sweat, it pushes the blood to the surface and literally coming out as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. It just seems natural that this is what Jesus was experiencing, a true medical condition. And if that's the case, folks, this would have left him even before the events of the cross in a weakened condition, his body. And he needed this strengthening from the, from the angel. But as he's through with this prayer, he's readied. In verse 45, he rose from prayer, came to the disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he is now fully resolved to take the full cup of judgment as he meets his betrayer and his band of sinners. Remember, as Jesus calls them, righteous leaders who think themselves righteous. And so they have persuaded Judas, and they've gotten, as we're going to see, the Roman soldiers and the temple police, the Sanhedrin police, their guard, together to take Jesus and apprehend him and bring him to give an account and to trial. And so Jesus is resolved. He's ready to take on this cup of judgment as we get to verse 2. And we see here the betraying of the Son of God. Now, again, as we read through these verses, starting at verse 2 in John, go back to John 18. Who's in control here? Again, is my question. 
Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, and that was Roman soldiers, um, Rome would have been involved in order for a group to be apprehended. They would have had to under Roman law. And also some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. These were the temple guard or the Sanhedrin police that would have been involved in uh, Jewish matters uh, that would have um, inserted and had jurisdiction over the Jewish people when the Jewish laws had been broken. These men were there as well. The chief priests and the Pharisees, these are members of the Sanhedrin, the great council that we've talked about before in the past that um, composed, were composed of the Sanhedrin, or excuse me, of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, scribes, and even some elders, respected elders in the Jewish community. These all came together with Judas to find Jesus and his followers. And do you notice here, they're armed. They're ready for trouble, right? Uh, they went with lanterns and torches and weapons. Well, why would they need this full regalia uh, in order to seek after Jesus? Well, their expectation, if they had these lanterns and torches, that was that. And this was obviously a place where Jesus and his disciples had met many times. Judas knew this. This might even be a place that, that um, Jesus and the disciples had made an agreement with the owner that they could be here on a regular basis as their own secluded secret spot. Mm -hmm. Judas knew this. He knew right where to go. And there was the expectation, guys, be ready for trouble. And these lanterns and torches were probably to seek out a group that they expected to hide somewhere there in the garden. From what we can tell of the timing of this, it was probably a full moon. So in one respect, it wouldn't have been too difficult to find people. But just in case, they had these lamps and kind of like the modern day flashlights we have today to seek out those that would be in hiding from um, this group of authoritative people. And they also expected some trouble, and that's why they took weapons. So can you imagine, as they're ready to seek out and subdue these rebels, how are they met? They're actually met with a savior who comes confidently to them. Oh, there's no having to seek him out. He goes forward, he and his disciples, to meet them. And a savior who has full knowledge about what he's to experience, no one else in this situation has the knowledge that Jesus does about what's to happen to him. And he meets them. And who begins the questioning? Not the group of authorities. No, it's Jesus. Jesus is the questioner here. And he says, Jesus, verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, whom do you seek? You've seen in shows and movies where there's a guy that says, I'm the one that's asking the questions here, right? That he's trying to portray that he's the one in authority. Well, Jesus doesn't even have to do that. He has such great authority that he just starts asking questions. You answer me. So who's in control here in all of this? And they answered, and that's right, Jesus is. It's very apparent. And they answered his question. Jesus of Nazareth, that was the official title, the official legal name. Jesus, where was he from? He was from Nazareth. So, of course, 
Um, they're identifying him in that way. And Jesus makes it clear to them, I am he. Jesus is con in control of the arrival of the betrayer. And we see that throughout this passage. But notice his statement here. What are the first two words? I am. And that should spark something within us. Jesus is not just answering their question, but really it seems best to see this as his invoking the identity of deity, of Yahweh himself in his response. The very power of his spoken identity is I am. And the power of his words, notice uh, the response to these or, or the reaction to this. In verse six, they drew back and fell to the ground. So the power of Jesus' words here shows again who's in control. They cannot even lay hands on him unless he allows them to. But in the midst of this, John goes back to Judas, and he wants to make it clear to us whose side Judas is on. And he said, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. It seems that again, Judas' betrayal made such an impact on the disciples and John in particular. You notice he's always mentioning this. He's always bringing it up. And he takes in the middle of this narrative even to bring up the fact that Judas, who betrayed him, John never got over the fact that it was Judas who was the betrayer. He, he was doing such a good job and had such a good act. They didn't know his part. And I think the disciples, for the rest of their lives, this was still hurtful and shocking to them. And it's like John says here, he betrayed him. Still can't believe it. And he was with them. He was with the enemy when they came to get him. The synoptics also give the fact of Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. But John, in particular, moves straight to Jesus' authority. Um, so let's go to verse 6 then. And again, this power of his words. Remember, he is the word. That's how he was described. And so you would expect that the very power of the words, I am, in his deity, and as a son of God, would have power toward them. And some people... Um, again, this is more, I think, more modern scholars look at this and say, well, what was going on here was that these powerful Roman soldiers and these temple officers were so surprised that Jesus actually came to met them that they kind of took a step back. And as they took a step back, they kind of stumbled over each other and just kind of fell over. And so you have that description in a lot of the commentaries I read, kind of like, you know, some of those bumbling policemen that you see in comedies and, and different things. Uh, but folks, I mean, these are trained Roman soldiers, right? These are, these are men that know well um, how to, they're very coordinated. I really don't see this as somehow um, they're not aware of their surroundings and they're so surprised, although I'm sure they were surprised at Jesus' confidence. They were not expecting Jesus to come to them and start questioning them. Jesus is in control of this whole thing. But I think the best description of this is that the very power of Jesus' words knocked them all over. And Jesus was reminding them that you can't even take hold of me 
with my, my letting you do so. So through the power of his words, they draw back. They fall to the ground, and he asks them again, whom do you seek? Again, he's the questioner here. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. He makes it clear. He is the one that they seek. And he's ready to go with them. But he says, basically, I will go with you, but you don't touch these men around me. They're off limits. Again, controlling the whole scenario. Jesus says, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Floyd just read that passage again today. Remember in his prayer to the Father, he said, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And Jesus was, would fulfill that in completion in telling these officers, You can take me, but you don't get to touch these men around me because I have kept them. And when I say I do something, I will do it. And I will finish and complete it. And so, in the midst of all of this, Jesus is able to keep his disciples safe in this dark hour of sacrifice. It is interesting that John, don't miss this, in verse 9, he uses the Old Testament fulfillment, the formula of Old Testament fulfillment with these very words of Jesus he'd recently spoken to his disciples. He's saying here that Jesus' words are fulfilled just as Scripture is fulfilled. He's saying that Jesus' words are the word of God. They're Scripture. And the words of Jesus are fulfilled now as well. And making that connection here. Well, Jesus is certainly in control of this whole thing. But as we saw in verse 11, he is ready to accept the results of this betrayal. And John in particular now actually gives us the name of the disciple who goes up and clumsily tries to defend his Savior. John's the only one that tells us that it was Peter, and he also tells us the name of the servant. Um, the soldiers are not bumbling and incompetent in this scenario, but Peter is. And really, we should look at Peter as trying somehow to defend Jesus, and he has this little, this is not a long sword by any means. It's described here. The Greek word is for some sort of short knife or something. And all he's able to do is, in his clumsy efforts, slice the ear off one of these servants. Like the, the Roman guards and everybody steps back, and the only buddy that he gets access to is this poor servant named Malchus, who's standing there because he has to be there, right? Poor guy. And Peter tries, gives an effort to try to stave off. In the midst of Jesus protecting him, he, in his um, rashness, and yet his desire, this is his sincere desire to protect his Messiah. I'm sure he's shocked that these men are about ready, and, and even to hear the words of Jesus that they can take him must have been shocking to Peter. And so in his anger, he strikes out. And what does Jesus say in this? Jesus says, Peter, put away the knife, put away your sword, put it back. This is what the Father has given me. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus is ready to drink the full cup of wrath and suffering because it's the will of his Father. And as a secondary thing, because of his love for us as well. 
And then Luke again tells us, not here in John, but Luke tells us that Jesus probably picks up the ear and heals the servant on the spot. Can you imagine what that servant's testimony must have been? Here he's probably expecting um, them to seek out these guys and having trouble in arresting them, band of rebels and renegades. And the leader, this Jesus, when he loses his ear, lovingly picks that up and heals him. What must this servant have thought? This certainly doesn't seem like one that's guilty. This is one that's showing love, showing compassion. Hmm. Makes you think, doesn't it? Let's look at a few more verses here. As Jesus, he's willing to drink the cup. He's willing as well. That he, is, he makes it clear in his words and his actions both that he's ready to go with them. And even though he does that, they feel the need somehow to maybe show their power over him or to make an example. They feel the need to bind him anyway. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. Um, I thought of this, that even as they were binding him, the picture in my mind came of Samson. If God had the ability, certainly all powerful and had the power to be able to allow Samson the power to be able to break his bonds. And we kind of scoff, right? When we hear Samson being bound, we know in the story that Samson, until the last thing with um, uh, with Delilah, he's able to simply snap those. How much more the son of God could have easily snapped these ropes? He could have easily had angels call them down and show these men how, how um, fruitless, how... Um, unnecessary it was to bind him and yet he allowed them to do it anyway you know i still have c.s lewis and his books the chronicles of narnia uh, frequently in my mind because i've read them to our children and enjoyed them and the pictures that he makes for c.s lewis was a christian and wrote many um, books defending the faith and some some very deep thoughts um, and wonderful material that he wrote I still remember, though, the very first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the two young ladies are following him. and They don't know what's about to happen to him, but he's about to give his life for a rebel, one of their brothers that has rebelled against what is right. And he leaves them in the bushes for them to watch, and he draws up. If you've read this before, I hope you have, because I can't tell you the whole story. But he's about ready to give his life, and he walks up to the witch and her cohorts, all these ugly, angry beasts, and they're hooting and howling. And he literally walks up on the table where they will get where he will give his life, and they allow him to bind him. They allow them to he allows them to bind him. And it's one of the saddest parts in the book because you realize this lion, this mighty lion that has this incredible power that could take out anybody in that land, allows himself to be bound together so that they could kill him. And in a much more significant sense, in reality, Jesus now is willing to be bound to ultimately face crucifixion. And he took that on knowing what would happen willing for them to do that. Now let's see a couple more details here that'll prepare us for next week. 
verse 13 and 14, says something interesting. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Well, why would they take him to this guy rather than just straight to the high priest for a hearing? And it's interesting that John will, in the next few verses, we'll see this next week, refer to Annas as the high priest. What's going on here? Which one is it? There's a good quote I found that D.A. Carson made that really helps describe the history of this. So listen carefully. Annas was the high priest that held the office from AD 6 until AD 15 when Pilate's predecessor deposed him. Annas continued to hold enormous influence, not only because many Jews resented the arbitrary deposition and appointment of high priests by a foreign power, because under the Mosaic legislation, the appointment was for life. God intended once a person was a high priest, remember Aaron, they got that position for life. But the Roman authorities said, ah, that doesn't mean anything to us. And Annas had somehow angered them. And so they said, Annas, you're out. You don't get to be high priest anymore. So we're going to choose someone else. Now, Annas was crafty enough somehow, or we don't know for sure. And he was very much uh, interested in nepotism, keeping it within the family, that he was able to keep the high priest position within the family. And it was no fewer than five of Annas's sons and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, that's mentioned here, that held the office at one time or another. So he's able to keep it in the family, even though he's deposed. But with all that understanding, Annas was thus the patriarch of a high priestly family. And so doubtly, many of the Jews still considered him the real high priest. That makes sense, right? even though Caiaphas was the high priest by Roman lights. So it makes sense then that the leaders would want Annas to have first access to Jesus before the rest of this debacle is carried through. Out of respect for Annas, many thinking he's the real high priest, he should see Jesus first. This is only recorded in John, by the way, that Jesus had a hearing with Annas, and we'll see more of that next week. One other thing John reminds us of, it was Caiaphas who had advised, remember, he's the official high priest that the Romans have made the high priest. He was the one that advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And this was the high priest that prophetically said more than he knew. He was giving advice to his fellow compatriots, leaders in the Sanhedrin but he was also carrying through the plan of the Father, the eternal plan of the Father for our salvation. That, yes, it's true, Caiaphas, there is one that will need to die for the people, but not for your own interests, but for the Father's interests. And that is to provide salvation for the world. And John, I think, is hinting to us here, these leaders think that they're in control of all of these proceedings, but their actions are actually carrying out the sovereign plan of God for salvation. So folks, was Jesus helpless? Was he at the mercy of these soldiers and officers? No, isn't it clear? He was in control of the whole thing, the whole situation. But he was submitting to his father's plan to provide salvation to be offered to the world. You see, he had accepted the full cup of all of God's wrath. 
and suffering. But that was still on his terms. They would be able to crucify him and bring him to trial in a less than honest and satisfactory way. But they weren't in control, actually, of any of these events at all. Jesus was in control of it all on his terms, not on the whims of soldiers or arrogant religious leaders. And he's able to deal with these sinners, and it will be turned into a way that he can deal with all of our sin. And let's remember, as we get further into these events in the next few weeks, let's not be so angry at the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders and forget that Jesus also had to die. We're to blame as much as they were because we, he had to die for our sins as well. And yet Jesus was willing to do that and he's in control and he will accomplish the mission that the father sent him on. It's already mission accomplished and Jesus is acting that way. So folks, if Jesus is in control of this darkest hour, don't you think he's also in control of everything that you face? His way is perfect. And as you trusted, put your faith in Jesus for what he did on the cross, we can trust his plan for us in every aspect of our lives. That's encouraging. And we ought to go from here motivated to serve him better. Lord, thank you. Thank you that as we continue through these details, that the realization that evil men, arrogant people, they weren't in control of this narrative. That ultimately, even though they crucified the Son of God, that Jesus was in total control. John makes this clear. And we rejoice that even in this darkest hour, that it would give that Jesus would receive the glory that he deserves in this most humiliating, painful, agonizing situation. He would be glorified. He would go to the cross on his terms, and he would glorify you and make it so that we could have his righteousness and be justified and experience progressive sanctification, everything we talked about in Sunday school this morning. So, Lord, help us not to fear the situations in our lives, but to trust you that you are in control, that Jesus knows what we face, and he will bring us through, just as he was able to go through, to be resurrected, and now sits with you. And one day we will, we will glory in his return, and look forward to all worshiping him together. Let us be confident that you are in control and at the same time submit to what you have for us in your plan for us. And this we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.